uh, here at Outspoken, our commitment hasn't been simply to bring entertaining and challenging authors to Mullaney, but also to support new writing and literature in general. And with that in mind, the, the model we've come up is where we, we have a headline author uh, who we use to attract as many ticket purchases as we can. <laughs> and then we also have an introducing author, somebody less well-known who we think the audience would uh, appreciate being introduced to and who also needs to be introduced and brought out into the world. In this case, tonight, we are doubly blessed, though, because we have two headline authors. We, yes. have, uh, we have a husband and wife team. We have Tim Flannery and Kate Holden. And uh, so it, we're just fantastic to have these things, and they have kindly consented to be part of the program. Poor Kate gets the kind of introducing slot, but there you go. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm the chairwoman, but I'm... Uh, Can I just say, I'm so happy to be, be here. We've spent the entire afternoon chasing around Mulaney, looking at real estate agents, having fantasies about moving here. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> Thank you, it's the nicest place. And we, we walked into a cafe this morning, we're deluged with kindness, free coffee and, um, and friendliness. You guys are doing it great, it's fantastic. Thank you. So, let me introduce this charming lady here who's obviously won your hearts immediately. <laughs> this great big okay. <laughs> We begin our evening with Kate Holden, the author of In My Skin and the Romantic Italian Nights and Days. For six and a half years, Kate was also a regular contributor to The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald Weekend, the Saturday paper. Uh, and uh, she now uh, writes for The Saturday Paper. And we're just going to talk for a little bit about these two books, uh, The Romantic and In My Skin. In The Romantic, we hear a lot about your, the complexity of your life uh, in Rome, you know, the kind of we this kind of weave of loneliness and uh, your attempts to find love and your exploration of the city and its history and the romantics in it. Mm. But one thing we, we don't seem to get a lot of in that book, as much as you do in in my skin is this idea of you as a writer. Hmm. I, I, I wondered, um, you know, it's, it's very obvious in my skin that you're taking notes all the time, right? All this stuff that's happening to you, yes. you're also going home at the end of the day and writing it down. Yes. At the time when you were living the romantic in Rome, were you actually writing in my skin? Uh, well, I was actually. I think the very first um, pages of In My Skin were written at a, t a kitchen table in Rome with a glass of, we'll say, let's say a bottle of limoncello next to me and Ella Fitzgerald <laughs> on, the, on the stereo, feeling a bit sorry for myself. So I, just to put it in context, I'd come out of five years of drug addiction and I did what they call a geographical and I went, moved to Rome to try and get away from the drugs and all my problems. And um, that did work, but it was a real decompression. So I was living there in a state of kind of heightened emotion, not you know, disoriented, not sure what the next step in my life was going to be, and coming off a really intense period in this kind of um, solitude that I'd imposed upon myself. And one of the things I did was I started imagining having a conversation with someone about my past, and that's where the first few pages of In My Skin came from, and I wrote them there because I was imagining what I was going back to. When I was having the experiences which I later described in the romantic, I was keeping a massive diary because um, I'm a narcissist, I guess, but also I was trying to make sense of so much and part of that was making sense of what I'd just been through and then who I was now that I wasn't the drug addict and I wasn't the sex worker and I wasn't the kind of tragic character that I'd found myself accidentally becoming and trying to forge this new identity which meant experiments with relationships and um, a presence in a foreign country, you know, you can remake yourself to an extent in a foreign country, and then trying to um, orient myself on the page, which I guess is what writers always try to do. So, when we were talking before, you 
told me this fascinating thing that though in your journals that you were keeping, you you didn't use the first person. You spoke of yourself always in the third person, yeah. which which I thought was a very interesting thing. Well, Boswell kept his diaries in the second person. He always addressed them to you. You must do this and you did that, which I think is really weird. <laughs> but um, look, I wrote my diary at that time in this fulsome um, way because I was had nothing left to in my life apart from romantic troubles and this kind of existential crisis. So I wrote really detailed accounts. And I guess they were almost fictional at that point in the sense that I was writing dialogue and, and so on. And I wasn't expecting at that point I was going to be writing a memoir out of them. But what happened in the years after that is I digested it and I, I kind of told the story to a few people and I realised it had this parable quality um, about a young woman who goes to Italy um, gets into trouble and um, both comes a cropper and finds a new identity, which is um, territory well trod by Henry James. Um, and I guess I was finding myself feeling like a fictional character. Thought I might write a fictional version of it all. And so I took notes from my diary and it was all just waiting for me there. And so I, I actually wrote it in the third person. Kate becomes a character, not I as I was in the first book. And it was really helpful because I could see myself so much more clearly and perhaps with less pity, or perhaps more pity but less hypocrisy. It was a really good technique to um, kind of put myself at a distance and see what had really happened instead of what I you know, wished had happened. So the whole purpose of the, the journal though was to try and make sense of it all, is that right? Yeah, that's what we write journals for, isn't it? Or to capture things. Um, I've always been a journaler and I've I now started work working on a computer. We were discussing this this morning, how I've made a break from those beautiful, you know, bound volumes that you, you know, you cherish when you're 15 and now I write on this cold clinical word document, which isn't the same um, intimacy but is probably more effective. And I still try to do it even in my tiny moments when I'm not looking after my son. Just I, I'm, I'm trying to capture the moment all the time and trying to make sense and see the patterns. And so I'm now making patterns of my life and his life and where, you know, things plat through and, I don't know, where's the, where's the classic story in it, I guess. So was it hard for you to convert these journals that you had into a memoir that had a kind of single narrative thread? Yeah, look, I, I started writing it as a novel and I thought I can change a few things, you know, as people often do, and I'm sure there are memoirists in the audience who've have had a try at this, where you think, I don't really want to write a memoir, I don't <coughs> want it to be me, I want to use the stuff that I know and then somehow have it both ways and have a fiction so I can, I can have the fun but without the responsibility. And what I found is it didn't kind of ring true. As soon as you start changing the shape of the architecture, you know, it, the stability falls out of the story. And my publisher is Michael Hayward at Text Publishing, who's a, a a, an amazing editor. And he took me to out to coffee after I'd shown him a first kind of draft, and he said, well, it's not really working, Kate. It doesn't read like an, a novel. It reads like a memoir. In that sense, there's, there's a bit of haphazardry. And he showed me um, Helen Garner's book, which she had been um, working on at that time. Um, Cosmo, uh, Cos Cosmo, Cosmo no? no, 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 the one about her friend who had cancer. The oh, spare yes, room. okay, the spare room. The spare yeah. room. And <coughs> he said, look, this is basically all true. This is, it's based on, you know, real events, but which Helen acknowledges, but it's a novel because she's compressed it so elegantly. And he said, you can try and do that, but in which case you have to <coughs> lose most of what you've got. You just concentrate on one element and, you, you know, you work that and that'll be your novel. But I didn't want to lose the whole thing. I thought there was material in the other sections that really needed to be told, so... 
I bit the bullet and I did what I'd been vowing not to do, which was write a little self-obsessed memoir. But, uh, I mean, one of the things about these books is that, that for me was, and it's very rare for me, that I found that I was actually quite shocked by the level of honesty in both of the books. Yes. Um, yes. And, and, and I, I need to state this, that that's a compliment. You know, thank that, you, that, thank that, you. That's, that's, a, that's a big <laughs> compliment. I get right? called <coughs> searingly honest quite a lot in the way people maybe say brave. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes, exactly, like, like in Yes Minister, very brave, yeah, very, very brave, brave minister. Yeah. That's right. Um, because normally what we do as writers is we dissemble. In some way or other, we write fiction. We give those difficult feelings, those difficult judgments that we make of other people and everything yeah. like that. We give them to a character because then they're a bit distant from us. Yes. And, but you don't, you eschew all that. You just say, look, this is me. This is who I was. And I, and I have no shame about that. No. And no, I don't. Um, look, I, I guess... I'm not saying you should have it. No, Sorry, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. Look, I... I um, I, I really don't, and I really felt so strongly in the first book as well um, that there was nothing I had to apologise for. What I wanted to do was give an account. And I'd been a sex worker and a, and a heroin user, which both are, are not the most popular gigs in town. But <laughs> um, what I had oh, found... Oh, there are with some people. Well, there are with some people. And I, I've got to tell you, they sell books. I'll, 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 I realise that later on. Um, but what I've really found is that I, I wanted to explain to people what I had experienced and that the, both the drug users and the sex workers and those worlds that I was in were nothing like I'd e expected when, b before I went into them and like nothing like most people in audiences like this would expect. And I felt so strongly that I really just wanted to explain what it was like, that it was so much more interesting and human and familiar and, and proximate, that it was so much closer to us than people like to think. Um, and so I, I, I understood very early on that the, the way I would best do that would just be to present my story. And that I, you know, even when I was doing drugs and all the rest of it, I could never afford to be as embarrassed as people wanted me to be. I was mortally humiliated. But if I had let the humiliation really permeate down the way people felt I should be, you know, humiliated, I would be dead. So I used my dignity as a way to survive. And I took that into the writing of the book because I really didn't think I had anything to apologise for. Um, and I got such a great response to that first book and that attitude. I've got to say, lots of people who had themselves been in those positions, in those scenes, responded to it. And lots of people who are close to those scenes responded to it. And then people who have nothing to do with those scenes took the honesty and the spirit with which it was offered. Um, and when it came to the writing the second book, I, I was you know, encouraged by all of this. But also, um, I pos possibly was in a little bit of a pissy mood, to be honest, because I, I'd spent five years, um, you know, being this allegedly reformed character who had done so well and had such a princess story and then everything worked out okay because I became a, you know, a well-known writer. And part of me wanted to keep saying, it's not that simple. Nothing's ever that simple. And so I wanted to write an account of how, when I got off the drugs, I was really stuffed up and how writing a memoir is not a simple business and how being a public proponent of a memoir is not a simple business. And so all of that attitude went into the romantic, which was, you know, you think you've had honesty from me before, I'm going <laughs> to really go there. <laughs> yes, yes, let's, yeah. have, let's have a little bit more. I really went there, didn't I? Oops. No, yeah. and, and, and very successfully. I, as yeah. I, I think I said it to you this morning, I was terribly impressed with the romantic. I thought it was a remarkable book. Thank but I, I didn't attend the Brisbane Writers' Festival, but you did a session there a few days ago, I believe, where you were talking about addiction uh, as yes. the, the, so a, a gentleman had written a book saying that addiction to heroin was not 
a medical thing, it was a behavioural thing. Yeah, were, that's did, right. Did you, what, were you, what were you talking about there? Oh, well, this was, a, this was a session that was broadcast on Radio National um, and we were interviewing, well, I was interviewed along with someone called Mark Lewis who's written a book called The Biology of Desire, which I haven't read but sounds fascinating. And he and another a guy who works in kind of the neuro neurology of addiction, um, we all ended up agreeing, my personal experience and their expertise, and Mark has also been himself an addict, we all agreed that addiction again, is not simple. And what happens more or less is that it, um, it comes perhaps from a psychological behavioural context, goes into the brain, the brain has an experience of this, m creates certain networks, responds to certain reward systems and so on. Drugs reform your brain. Um, and then uh, the same way eating disorders and other things do, so it's not necessarily the chemical substance, uh, but the, the brain adapts to that kind of behaviour, forms an addiction, um, grows dependent on those kind of systems, but then can be retrained, which was really crucial. So instead of it being a malady, which you know needs to be treated with a whole lot of um, medical procedures, it's one that can uh, um, be reactive to much more subtle things, You know, just retraining people to have fun or to see their friends or to find satisfaction in other ways. And that was totally my experience, that I did a whole lot of um, different treatment options when I was a heroin user. And ultimately, it, for me, it was a combination of getting bored, not having so much access to the drug, um, and having a few friends who literally took me out and said, see this? This is a park. These are trees. That's the sky. Feel the sunshine. And giving me all the things that I'd forgotten for such a long time. And just simply giving me options to feel and respond to other things. Yeah. Not quite that simple, <laughs> but that's the, that's the gist of it. Which is clearly why you're responding to Melania so well. Yes, that's right. <laughs> the, the headiness, <laughs> the, <laughs> wow, so the coffee. Thank you so much indeed for coming and talking Thank to us here so tonight. Much. And uh, and please put your hands Absolute together pleasure. for Kate Holden. Thank you.